Justin, when I was uh, working on this series, uh, it occurred to me how often we use uh, the imagery of bread uh, to describe the thing that sustains us and that provides for us. Uh, it's Reformation Sunday, so you may not realize that uh, Martin Luther was quoted one time as referring to beer as liquid bread <laughs> because of the way in which it had sustained him in his ministry, apparently. Um, there was, you know, I was born in the 1960s, and I still remember people using the word bread to refer to money because of the economic crisis people were going through. Uh, when I was in high school, I was on the football team, and we had, a, uh, we had a play called 32 Belly, which the coach referred to as our bread and butter play that you could always count on to get you a few extra yards when you needed it. Well, we've been looking this fall at the book of Exodus so that we can uncover what it means for us to be the people of God. And we come this morning uh, to a story about God's provision of bread for these broken people. And what follows in the story became this huge metaphor for the people of God throughout the rest of their history about how they sustain themselves. Uh, but what's interesting is it's not always the most readily uh, uh, um, applicable topic for people. Um, I read an article recently that was talking about how scientists have discovered a certain hormone called ghrelin. Apparently, ghrelin lives in your gut, uh, and it lets you know that you're hungry. Uh, its purpose is to create a sense of, uh, of craving of something on the inside. And scientists, of course, have tried to sort of harness exactly what's going on with this, uh, this hormone uh, so that maybe if they can sort of counteract it, they can help people who are struggling with various addictions to, to food or to alcohol or maybe to drugs. But what I think we're saying this morning is, is there's actually... There's actually something that we would refer to as spiritual ghrelin. That is, there's something that causes us to crave sustenance in our own hearts. And that we are born hungry. That is, we all have a daily bread to which we turn to help make li our life make sense for us. It was sometime in the mid-1990s when someone first introduced this concept to me. And I've not found anything that's so helpful for me to understand myself using. And it's a simple idea that my behavior is simply a result of whatever it is that I'm feeding on at any given time. That's the explanation for it. Uh, I, I realize you can feed off your career, which is the roots of workaholism. You can feed off the approval for your friends, which is why you're completely frozen until you get approval from them. Uh, sometimes people feed off those compliments that come from friends. You ever heard people fish for those things? Well, you know, I just don't think I'm pretty enough to do something like that. I'm not smart like those other people. And you're just waiting for someone to be like, oh, of course you are feeding those things in. But here's the point. The inputs into your life are serving an internal hunger. That's the point. And my guess is we tend to get fixated, though, with the inputs. And we rarely look at what it's serving. By way of illustration, I think some of you have been a little bit surprised uh, how in adulthood you found how hard it is for you perhaps to enjoy an evening with friends without sort of drinking yourself into various levels of inebriation so that you can be fun, so that you can have the friends that you want. But see, in the Bible's calculus, it's not the wine that you're feeding on. What you're feeding on is the affirmation that you get from how fun you can be with your friends. But, but the alcohol in that scenario is not the problem, it's the cause. It's not, excuse me, I got that backwards. It's not the cause, it's the problem. What's driving the unavoidability and the inability to sort of be in social settings without alcohol 
is simply a spiritual hunger. We're not right with yourself. You're not at home in your own skin, hence the need to sort of lubricate oneself socially. So how does the Bible make sense of this? Well, it does through the story of manna. Because from the very beginning of the people of God, we have this phenomenon of a daily bread that God is feeding his people with. So I just want to look at two points this morning. The grumbling that happens in the desert. And secondly, the feeding on the manna. It's those two points. They're there in your, uh, in your bulletin. So like, this chapter sort of uh, is the story uh, about manna that is actually interesting. The second in a series of three stories that Moses is telling about the grumbling that the people are doing there in the wilderness. And so I just want to throw out two questions this morning. First of all, what are they doing? And then second of all, what are they doing? So two questions. Look, they're here, first of all, because God brought them here. Look at that verse one there. It says, they set out from Elim. What that means is whenever the people would set out, it's because the cloud by day and the fire by night were leading them. So step one into understanding the spiritual state of these Jewish people is to realize that very clearly they wouldn't be in this trouble if God had not brought them into it. It's a very important point, which of course begs the question, which we've asked a bunch of times this semester, why would Yahweh do that? (laughs) Why would he put them in such a desolate, foreboding space? Well, that's a great introduction to a huge theme that goes throughout the Old Testament. And that's this theme of the purpose of the wilderness, the desert spaces. In other words, throughout the Bible, God is constantly bringing his people into these difficult places, oftentimes very soon after their outset into their journey with Christ. And it's really hard to blame people for asking the question, well, why would God do that? Most of the time, the way it feels to us, it's like he's judging us. You know, what did I do to deserve this? Found an Old Testament commentator who says that while, yes, there are times in which God does use the wilderness as a judgment on his people, that's actually not what's going on here in Exodus 16. Most of the time, God sends his people in the wilderness to test them. Look at verse 4. Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, look, when you and I think about tests, we think about the exams that we took in school. There's a professor up there who's sort of waiting to pass or fail you, depending on how you measure up. In other words, those tests are to measure your, your worthiness, right? They're coming to see whether you, are, whether you measure up. But, but that's not the kind of test that we're getting here in the book of Exodus, in the wilderness. These kinds of tests are sort of explicated in some other places, even in the book of Exodus. If you were to go forward a couple of chapters to chapter 20 and look at verse 20, God says this, or Moses says this, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. In other words, God doesn't test the children of Israel to see if they're worthy. (laughs) He's got that one down pat. And honestly, you've read enough to know that these people haven't done anything to make themselves worthy of God's grace. No, He's coming to help them learn the nature of the obedience that God requires of them or what he says is to keep them from sinning. What does that mean? Well, the the, the lessons that God is going to teach them there in this desert place are for their benefit so they can stop killing themselves with this this Egyptian mindset in life. Uh, Tim Keller highlights another purpose of these wilderness tests on a sermon I heard him do from Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
when in verse 2, uh, Moses says this, You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart. That's the key, which kind of leads me to answer the second, what are they doing here question? Because the Bible calls their behavior grumbling. But when the Bible uses that word, it's not just talking about like some kind of whiny, complaining attitude that these people have. Don't assume that what God is after here is to sort of confront these little, um, I don't know, bratty, spiritual babies that these people are acting like. This is actually a far more serious condition, and grumbling is deeper than just complaining. And you have to look at what these people say to Moses to really get at the root of this, because they say two things. The first thing they say is, man, don't we wish we were back in Egypt. These people have completely reimagined their life to what it was like before they uh, left Egypt. In other words, they're looking at their present suffering and they're using that to go back to things that they thought were true yesterday, but now are not so true. And we want to go back because we're hungry. Must have been some awfully fancy meat pots, whatever in the world meat pots are <clears throat> back there in Egypt. But the truth is that's not true. There was no, nothing better about the food that they had in Egypt than they had here. But you see what they're doing? They're reshaping their very memories of their past in the light of their present suffering. This is a huge principle to get because it's really one of the great powers of your heart and my heart to go back and look at the same events that had one meaning yesterday and totally recast them into something quite different because of my hurt. So bear with me. We had the marriage conference this weekend, so I've kind of got marriage on the brain. And John mentioned something this weekend that made me have to do a little rewriting this, uh, this, uh, yesterday afternoon. But he was talking about, have you ever been in a fight with your spouse? And at one point, one of you says something to the effect of, well, you know what? I'm not sure I ever loved you. Which, of course, is completely absurd and wrong. <laughs> of course you love them. You've been together with them. You have history together. You've had shared experiences. You did life together for some measure of time, even if it wasn't devoid of conflict. But what's happened when you say, I don't know if I've ever loved you, is you're reinterpreting your past. You've recast it to conform with whatever it is that you're suffering from now. But here's my point. The tendency to do that is highly immature and very destructive. I mean, think about these Jewish people are wanting to resubmit themselves to to the masters that abuse them. Who does that? Well, the answer is addicts. (laughs) Addicts do that. And the second thing that you see them doing, not only are they reinterpreting their past, but they're actually abusing their saviors. I think this is fascinating. Look at how they lash out at Moses and Aaron, well, and even God for that matter, when they said, you know what you're really here to do? You're here to kill us. That's what you're up to. We've got you figured now. Look, any addict will not only look and sort of uh, uh, long for their slavery to their drugs, but they'll also most often lash out at the very people who are trying to help them. Some of you are nodding because you've had friends and relatives who have been in that same situation, and you take the most shrapnel, do you not? As they go through their addictions... Look, hopefully you can now see why it's important that God is trying to help them know what was in their hearts. It's for them to know their own hearts that they had these tests because God is counseling them. He's training the people to see themselves as they really are. 
to own their addictions, if you will. And look, here's the big principle just before we move on to the next point. You can get people out of slavery in a second, (laughs) but you don't get the people, the slavery out of the people, except through a very long process. Let's say, for instance, that you have, uh, that you're the oldest child in your family. So you have oldest child syndrome, right? You're a perfectionist. You're an overachiever. Uh, You're the obedient child who always stayed home, did the right thing. But you're also deeply frustrated. You're afraid so much more than anybody wants you to know. You, you, You get that feeling that people are always purposely antagonizing you. But then one day you meet Jesus in the gospel. And you suddenly hear that Jesus is not asking you to be the one to hold your family together (laughs) because he's the one holding you together. You realize that he doesn't expect perfection of you. He's the one who provided perfection for you in the cross. It's a dramatic realization and it changes your view of everything. That happens on a Sunday, but then it's Wednesday Wednesday comes along and you get to work and you find out that there was a mistake that was made by somebody in your department that you're going to have to take the blame for because it came from your spot. Suddenly, you are spun out into a powerful depression, right? How long does it take before we start to stop blaming our work circumstances and realize that the problem is me? Answer, it takes a long time. That's the answer. But we'll never see the connection between what I'm doing and how I'm acting and what my circumstances are until you face a challenging work situation or, in a word, a wilderness. That's what God's doing. But Christian maturity, to some degree, is feeling the weight of the disaster that lives in seed form in your heart. My dad used to always tell me, he was like, you know, son, every one of us is about two or three really dumb decisions away from completely blowing up our lives. So buckle up. I think he's right. We'll never see, though, that fact until we face our grumbling, until we're there in a a wilderness. Because what we typically want is a gimmick. We want a technique, you know? Solve this quicker. We want instant results. There's a little throwaway verse a few more chapters ahead in chapter uh, Exodus 23, verse 20, where God is telling them, like, I'm going to give you the land of Canaan. You're going to go march in there and you're going to possess the land. But look what it says. He says, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. In other words, God is saying, you're not going to be able to be what I want you to be if I give it to you all at one time. That's the deal. Rather, it's going to come little by little through little dark wildernesses. That's how God fashions his people. Okay, so grumbling in the desert. God is trying to unveil and help us see our own addictions to sin. But then secondly, though, there's this feeding on the manna, second point. Because that's not where the story ends. I mean, the whole passage is about how God wants to come and help his people. And he's very specific about this provision he's going to make, about how you should react to it. Number one, you only gather enough for one day. And number two, don't do it on Sunday or on the Sabbath day. Let me take both those because it's really interesting how this unpacks. First of all, he says, only take enough for one day. Look at verse 4 in chapter 16, because you find something interesting there. God not only brings them into the desert to test them, but he actually provides for them to test them. Isn't that interesting? Remember, he's trying to get them to sort of figure out um, what's inside them so that they can be changed and trained. So the question comes, what could they possibly gain by only getting enough food for one day? 
Why not one week or one month? That would be so much more efficient, right? Well, most commentators agree that this is probably what Jesus was thinking about when he taught his disciples how to pray, saying, give us today our daily bread. This is probably on his mind. But why does God keep stressing that we need his help every single day? This reminded me of an illustration. Uh, in, in a previous life, I functioned as a, a sort of, a, a, sort of a, 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 te- a technical support for the computer needs of our campus ministry I was working for. Bear with me. This is a computer nerd illustration. So 80% of you can check out and do something for the next minute or two. But these people would call me and ask me these questions to see whether or not I could help them or whether they need to actually go help and get their computer fixed. And I got a call from a friend of mine one time who shall remain nameless. Um, who said, look, Les, I've got a question. And I remember his question vividly because it went like this. 10% of you are going to think this is hilarious. He said, look, I feel like I need to upgrade my computer, but I'm not sure if I should upgrade to the new Windows or just stick with Microsoft Office. <laughs> now, here's the thing. If some of you are being like, what, 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 what? Why is that funny? What? I, I would ask that question immediately. I said to my friend, I love you. And your question is so ignorant that I can't even answer it. (laughs) Would you like for me just to buy your computer for you and get you what you need? He was like, yes, please, could you? (laughs) This is the point. (laughs) I heard one preacher say one time that what God is trying to get across to these people there in the wilderness is that you need a moment-by-moment relationship with one who knows you and knows you on a daily basis. And the truth of the matter is, so many of the questions that we pose to him are so ignorant that he can't even answer them. I think it's one of the reasons why we struggle in our prayer lives. We, we bow our heads and we're like, Lord, please, would you just, would you just make my spouse love me more? You know, Lord, would you please draw this wayward child uh, uh, and make him into a perfect, obedient little angel? Lord, would you please just let my boss go find another job and work for another company? And it's as if God is saying, there's no way for me to reveal to you the complexity of my purposes in your life right now. But I will say this, you just need me every day. Because the truth of the matter is, you begin to realize that God is all you need when God is all you have. In other words, we do not simply go to God for our needs, but we have to learn to go to God as our need, as our fundamental need. Look, the wilderness is looking at these things that you've lost and realizing they've had control over me for way too long. And obviously in our prayers, we struggle with that. But what happens in the wilderness is we suddenly change our prayers. They get different. We begin to look and say, actually, what I really needed was God. I don't look at God and say, please give those things back to me. What I say is I need you. I don't need to be smarter or prettier or wealthier or whatever. What I need is you. So it's going to be a daily thing. But secondly, he says, don't pick it up on the Sabbath day, this day of rest. And again, this seems really arbitrary. Uh, why stop it on day one? Like, why go to all the trouble of doing the double, the double deal on Saturday when we got to collect that much for Sunday? But remember, God is actually testing them. He's, he's counseling these people. And their main spiritual problem is the spiritual grumbling that at its heart is really discontent. It's a chronic anxiousness inside of their own hearts that he's trying to deal with. And so he says, okay, so on one day, you're just going to stop. Now, look, at this point, you sort of real, 
People tend to fall out the second that you mention the Bible's teaching about a Sabbath day of rest into two poles that I want to try to avoid. The, the one side are people who are just kind of have that knee jerk like, oh, 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 seriously, we're going to start talking about taking the day off on Sunday? Are we going to turn into one of those legalistic churches? Get nervous about it. But see, this is one of the problems. You don't got to do a lot of study before you realize that resting on Sabbath day it made it into the top 10, okay? And so like, we can't just dismiss it. We want to understand it, but we can't just dismiss it. But on the other hand, there's other people who are like, oh, you're right. And so they spend a ton of mental and spiritual energy trying to get as specific as they can about what can and cannot be done on Sunday. And oh, how much they love to sort of let others know that what they're doing, that really seems inappropriate. You know what I'm talking about? But look, I think the lesson of the manna gives us a guide through what I think are two very fruitless extremes. Because what it teaches us is that God's command for us to set aside one day in seven and not do whatever it is that we make a living doing is not for you to recoup energy. I'm certainly that's a sub-reason. Rather, we take a Sabbath day so that we can look at my work especially and say, you can get along just fine without me. It is an anti-anxiety statement. It's to look at that thing and say, you don't define me, job. <laughs> you are not my master. You are not my identity. And so I'm going to voluntarily shut you off and become inefficient for an entire day for that very purpose. So the Sabbath day is a test. <laughs> I mean, seriously, try committing yourself to one day to stay away from all of your work stuff for one day. And I'm not talking about being in a deer stand either. Because even there, I mean, how many times do you check your email up in that stand? You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying is, is did, we, did we find a time where we simply called a time out and spent a day being thankful for the job that I do have and that it doesn't tyrannize me? Because that's going to show you how, that's going to show you who's the slave and who's not, won't it? Uh, Paul Marshall wrote, Heaven is not my home. And he said this, he says, When we rest, we acknowledge that all of our striving will of itself do nothing. Genuine rest requires acknowledging that God and our brothers and sisters, they can survive without us. It requires recognizing our own insufficiency and handing over responsibility. That's why rest requires faith. It's also why salvation can be pictured as rest. When we receive and accept God's grace, we don't seek to earn, we receive. We do not justify, we are justified. Look, so how do we apply this? I think there's two applications before we close. Look, in that Deuteronomy passage we were just reading, Moses actually, when he was reflecting on the manna, uh, found that the miracle of the bread was not intended just to sustain them physically, but there was a deeply spiritual lesson too. It goes like this. He goes, He gave you manna to eat which you and your fathers had not known, so that you might learn that man does not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, Moses is saying, God was not just filling your bellies. He was trying to shepherd your heart and humble you so that every day you will be dependent on everything that you think and do upon the Bible. God's discipling his people. He's shaping them by looking and saying, I need you to turn my word into spiritual sustenance for you. That's what I want you to do. In other words, for us to be the people of God, 
We need God's word every day in the same way the Israelites needed manna every day. The God who is worthy to be trusted for bread is the God who is worth listening to every day. John 17, 17. We are sanctified through your word. So here's the deal. We've got to find some way of turning truth into bread. I realize that's largely a cognitive experience, but it's still an exercise of my of my work, to get up in the morning and say, God, how is it that I can be sustained by the things that you've told me about what the world looks like around me? And we have to have it. Otherwise, we rot. Otherwise, we lose sustenance, and it needs daily consideration. The second point, though, is not only do we need God's word, but we need to realize that all that is about discovering someone very specific. You know, Jesus in John chapter 6 is having a conversation with some skeptics who say, hey, you know, what about this bread from the old days that our forefathers ate? I mean, what, what was all that about? Jesus, of course, tells them that, you know, the father, his father will give them true bread. And they're like, sweet, give us some of that bread. You remember what Jesus says? We read it this morning. He says, I am the bread of life. Eat from me and you'll never go hungry again. What's he saying? He's saying, if you find your sustenance, your, your daily provision in my person and my work on your behalf, then you're never going to be enslaved to those cruel masters of your appetites ever again. That's the lesson. Look, when Mary Carr was uh, was 14 years old, she got really, really sad one night while her parents were out. And she made a decision to take her own life by swallowing a big old handful of pills. Well, it didn't work. She was unsuccessful. It simply made her sick to her stomach. When her parents finally returned home, she came home and told them that she suspected that it was probably food poisoning or something like that. But she said, you know, the look in my father's eyes told me that he suspected that there was something deeper going on. So he just looked at her and he said, honey, do you think, do you think there's any food that you could stomach tonight? She said, well, all I could think to eat is a plum. But of course, plums are out of season right now. So even they're not available. So she lay down and went to sleep. Next thing she knew, she woke up the next morning to her father standing over her bed with a bushel of plums in his hand. He had actually left that evening after she went to bed and drove all the way from Texas to Arkansas through the night to get her a basket of plums so that she could have something to eat. (laughs) She writes into her memoir the next day. She says, but it's when you sink your teeth into the plum that you make a promise. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck and the nectar runs down your chin and then you snap out of it or you are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand on yourself, not so long as there are plums to eat and somebody, anybody who cares enough to haul them to you. Look, true freedom, true feeding comes when we find Jesus to be delightful to be fulfilling, to be satisfying. And he even gave us a a ritual meal to celebrate, like we'll do next week here. The Lord's Supper, we we, we reenact this feeding on the manna. We spiritually feed on Christ and make him our only provision in life. And you know what it does? It heals us. It heals us of our grumbling, helps us own our addictions, and brings us into true satisfaction. Why? Why? Because there's somebody who cares enough to have brought you something that's even better than plums. 
So my question I'm going to leave you with this morning is, are you hungry for that? Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would feel that and sense that. Even when we don't feel it, it's still true. Father, some of our addictions have blinded our even ability to acknowledge that we need you. We pray that perhaps this morning you would, un- that you would unfold that for us. Some of us, Father, are in the wilderness. Things are getting stripped away with every day. We thought we had comforts. We thought we had poise. We thought we had respect. It all just wanes away with every passing day, and we're needful. Father, in the wilderness, would you come and let us feed on you here, that in the end, when it comes down to it, you are all we need. So would you reveal yourself to us? Would we, even as we sing together, we ask that you would do that in us. We pray in Jesus' name.